Welcome to the Coach's Edge podcast dedicated to teaching, sharing, and learning the game. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Steve Kramer of the Coach's Edge, and today we are joined by the speed guy, sports performance coach, speed specialist, Lee Taft. And on this episode, Lee really does a great job of explaining how we can get the most out of our athletes athletically in season. And he's basketball specific. He's he's not only a speed specialist. He has a background in basketball. He's coached at the varsity level, both boys and girls. And one of the things that stood out to me from my conversation with Leah is a lot of times when we talk about athletic performance, we talk about how we can do that in the off season. And Lee does a great job of breaking down how we can improve our athletes in season and get much more effective and efficient with our time and how we how we go about that with some of the drills, exercises, and concepts that he shares. So thank you to Lee for joining the Coach's Edge podcast. If you find this beneficial, please do that favor for me. Share it. Leave a positive rating and review. That will go a really long way. Let's get to the show. I'd like to give a warm Coach's Edge welcome to sports performance coach, the speed guy, Lee Taft. Lee, thanks for taking the time to be on the Coach's Edge podcast. Oh, this is amazing. See, if you kidding me, like we were just saying, when we get to talk basketball, that's a really good day. So thank you for having me. It is. I mean, you're you're a busy man. You have a, a lot going on. Just listen to you on a friend of mine uh, podcast with with United Basketball. And so it's cool that we were able to connect. You're doing things around the country. You're traveling, running clinics. You've had different facilities. Uh, you're down in Florida doing training there. Um, so before we dig in, what gets you most excited about everything that you have going on right now? You know, it's funny. Um, you know, having been doing it for as long as I have, you kind of go, and everybody does this, you go from being okay with working 15 hours a day to eventually saying, okay, this is getting a little bit too much. And then you kind of <laughs> you kind of find, try to find alternative ways to still do what you like to do, but not, you know, not burn yourself out. And I think we've all gone through that. So now what excites me, first, first and foremost, is just continually learning uh, more about um, our craft. Because I think the more I dive into, it's like every time you open a door, there's a whole bunch of stuff you didn't realize you have to learn. And that's the stage I'm at. I keep diving deeper into how do we learn? Like, why does the brain learn and how do we do things? So if I look at it in our case, like with basketball, I'm like, well, how does a kid really learn skills? Yeah, we do reps, we do this, but what are they really doing? So that excites me because it's new. Even though learning's been around since the you know time of day, but it's still something we don't completely understand. We have a better grasp of it, but when you watch how kids learn and, and even older people learn uh, new tests, that excites me. So Every day when I, when I'm, whether I'm training an athlete or I'm consulting with someone or I'm doing a clinic or whatever, that's always one of my foundational things is let's, let's make sure that learning is taking place and then we can build upon what we just learned and then expand into different variables or higher level skills or whatever. So I would say that's my biggest thing right now is just this, this fascination with learning. No, I love it. And that seems to be uh, the common characteristic with all the great coaches that I've had the chance to know over the years is always hungry to learn. And the more you, the more, you know, 
the more you realize you don't know. And it yeah, just keeps exactly. keeps rolling, 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 which is really exciting. Um, and I know a lot of our coaches are excited if they clicked on this episode. I mean, they're, they're thinking, okay, sports performance coach, you know, they, they probably followed you uh, over some time, possibly as well. And so they're thinking, how is a basketball coach, can I get my guys or my girls to be more athletic, whether that's quickness, speed, you know, jumping, agility, starting, stopping, changing direction. So, I mean, that's a bunch of things that I just threw out there. But for a coach who's about ready to dive into basketball season, what is some of the advice that you would give them so that they can keep things moving or maybe begin moving in the right direction for their athletes? Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. So my, I would say my biggest benefit that where I can help give some pretty good advice on this is not only have I played basketball, I played it in college. I've coached it. I was a, I was a head varsity basketball coach at age of 23 back in uh, New York, um, 1989, uh, 1990 was my first year. And that next year I took over the program. And, and so from then on, I've coached at many different uh, levels, different age groups. So when I was implementing my speed and quickness and agility type training, I, I did it from the standpoint of, okay, I got to get my team better. It's not just me getting a group of athletes better than handing it over to another coach to let them do it. I actually had to get my team better. So I had to you know prove to myself that I could do that as a young coach. And then over time, I've, as I've learned more. So one of the first things is I, I really think is important is have a have a basic fundamental understanding of the models of just basic movement. And what I mean by that, Steve, is we've got basically seven patterns. We're going to run forward. And one phase is called acceleration. So maybe from the foul line to half court, not very far, but extremely important. The next one is sprinting. So maybe baseline to baseline or baseline to the you know, three-quarter court. We're getting pretty close to max velocity at that point. So those two things are critical. We can work on those. Those are not difficult. Kids have been doing them since they're three years old. So it's not something unforeign. We just need basic understanding of what the arm should do, what the leg should do, and then kind of an idea of how we work speed versus conditioning. Because I need to allow rest if I want to get my kids faster versus if I'm trying to get them in shape, I might not give them as much rest. The other thing is we have to move lateral, which that's a, that's a staple of basketball, right? Defensive shuffle, <clears throat> lateral shuffle. And then, a <clears throat> excuse me, the second movement is a lateral run. Most coaches know it as a crossover. I call it a lateral run because that's technically what it is. So we have to become real efficient and proficient at those two movements. So there's four. Now we know we're gonna move backwards at some point. So we have to know how to back pedal. And then we have to know how to hip turn. So that would be me guarding you at the top of the key. You give me a shot fake, and then you try to drive by me. Once you start getting by me, I have to open my hips and then retreat backwards doing something, maybe a shuffle, a lateral run, or whatever it is. And then we have jumping. That's our seventh pattern. Now, we have all kinds of variations of those. But if your players from day one learn those seven patterns, and you implement those in your warmups every day, they're gonna become very efficient. Now, when you ask your players to do some kind of zone trap or man-to-man -man press or, or transition defense, they've already been through these basic patterns and it's not foreign to their bodies. I always say this, 
at the most critical times in games, when pressure's on, that's when we see footwork mistakes because they haven't been exposed to it enough. It's kind of like forcing a player with 10 seconds to go in the game to their left if they're a, if they're a righty and they're not confident with their left. Usually something's going to break, right? There's going to be some kind of turnover or a pass or a forced shot. They're just not comfortable. Now you've added nervousness and pressure on it. It gets worse. Well, we see that in footwork as well. We make defensive mistakes. We make offensive mistakes with our feet because we haven't been exposed to it enough. And that goes back to our initial comment on learning. The more they learn it, the less they have to rely on thought. They just rely on reaction. It just happens. They do it. The body's been there, done that. They've seen it and they can do it. So I would remind all the coaches, get very good at moving in all those planes, running, sprinting, jumping, shuffling, backpedaling, hip turns, all those. If your players can do all those, now you can stack more advanced skills on top of that. I love that. You're, and you're knocking those common basketball movements out within their warm-up. So exactly. not, not only are they getting these movements in, but they're obviously getting warmed up, yep. getting ready to, to move, and then getting into your practice, which, which I love. Um, you talked about different types of defensive movements. You talked about some of that lateral shuffle, lateral run. Um, and, and so I want to pick your brain a little bit on that. And I know you have some terminology that you use too. So, I mean, defense is huge. We all want to be quicker, especially laterally. Nobody wants to get scored on um, as far as our coaches. So what are some things that we can do to really work on the types of footwork that we need in a game? Yeah, yeah. So obviously it starts with uh, an efficient stance. And uh, one of my biggest pet peeves that I've tried for years to get coaches to understand is because when I played too, it was always about getting lower, you know, sitting down in your stance. Well, what happens? Players get very uncomfortable and they don't move really well. And based on the type of athlete you are, if you're somebody that's very elastic, you don't like to get low. You want to play a little bit higher, kind of like Michael Jordan did. Michael Jordan didn't get parallel to the ground like some of these guys can. He got a little higher, was very quick. And you see that with a lot of these really fast uh, reactive defenders. So teach them the stance, teach them what it means to be in the stance and give them context. And context means if I say to you, uh, Steve, this, this player could potentially drive hard on you to the right and try to turn the corner and you don't have any help. Well, now you have context as to how you're going to have to move to, to stop that player from getting to the basket. You understand you got to somehow get in that pathway between your player and the basket. And so now that they understand that, now we can start to select these, these shuffles or lateral runs to be able to get in front of that defender. One of the things that we want to be able to do and using uh, terminology is if I know I'm forcing a player to one side of the court, I pretty much have determined what my footwork's going to be like or, or, or my options, right? As where if I lined up square up on you and you were equally as good either way, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do because I don't know what you're going to do. But if I, if I really get up maybe on the top side, you're on the right side of the court and I push you to the right, to the baseline side, I kind of know probably 75% of your movement's going to go to that right. So there's a really good chance that I might use a lateral run right off. I'm going to let you go. Now I'm going to go hard to not let you beat me completely, knowing that I've got some help. So I can say to my players, hey, right now, 
you're going to be be ready because you're going to be using a power or a speed lateral run, meaning you're going all out, big effort. Versus, if I am denying your uh, catch on the three point line, I want you to catch it outside the three point line, like out of your shooting range. We will tell our players, hey, let's use a snap shuffle here. Snap shuffle just means we're going to be real quick. We're going to deny that initial pass on the three-point line. If they get beyond that, let them go. Now we square back up. So the, when I use that terminology, snap shuffle, that instantly tells my players the footwork they're doing and what not to do. Don't lunge. Don't reach. Don't get caught where you can get back to it because that's not our purpose. Just snap shuffle, which is a very quick shuffle. And then we would use that same snap shuffle on a, on a hedge. You're coming off a ball screen. My post player is helping me. They're staying attached. But the minute you start coming over, they're going to just give you a quick snap shuffle to bounce you out. And that gives me a chance to get back in position as, as the guard to get back on, on the offensive guard. So terminology instantly gives the player context as to how they should be moving their feet based on that play. So those are some of the things we do to keep our athletes engaged. Oh, that's really, that's really good. On the lateral shuffle, I'm trying to envision that in my head. Would that be like, if you're driving down the right sideline, you're on the run with the dribble, I'm playing defense. Would that be me? Like my chest would be facing you, but my body's still sprinting Am I, where I'm kind of opened up to you with my upper body. Is that kind of what you're explaining? I'm just trying to get a For picture. The lateral run. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yep. Yep. So, so what, what, what happens is the shuffle allows me to stay oriented when you're not going full speed, like you haven't beaten my capacity to go laterally, like I can shuffle with you. But the minute you start to expose my front shoulder, my lead shoulder, you start to get your shoulder past that, instantly we go into a lateral run. And all we do is we open our hips. I'm still trying to keep my upper body somewhat squared to you because of the potential of a step back, change direction, and yeah. plus that's where the orientation is. But it allows me to go faster because a shuffle gate is a push, pull, recover, push, pull, recover, but neither leg crosses the midline of the body. It doesn't, you can go to the midline, feet will come underneath, but a lateral run with the pelvis turning is a normal running gate just not as squared up as like sprinting would be. Uh, you did a perfect job explaining that. And it, it's, you know, when we think about what we see in a game and what players do, <laughs> unfortunately, I think that's a lot different than what we as coaches have taught it for decades, right? Where exactly. you're, you're in a lateral shuffle. Okay. They're going fast, shuffle faster. It's like, well, you're not going to be able to shuffle as fast as somebody's <laughs> on a sprint, even if they got the, got the ball. I think it's huge for us to be able to, um, practice those different types of defensive movements. And, you know, if, if there's that slight movement, you talked about denying without the basketball, you're using it hedging on a ball screen where, you know, it's that wide base, we're getting big, you know, we're able to, to change direction forward, backward, um, but also keeping the, the, the upper body facing uh, offensive player when, when they're on, the, they're hitting the gas. I, I think that's something that's huge for us to, be able to keep in mind working with our, our guys and girls and, and the hip turn, I'm sure comes into that makes exactly. it easier when our torso is facing somebody. Right. Exactly. And that's one of the things. So one of your questions earlier was like describing, what are we looking for defensively? Well, one of the concepts we constantly teach with our players is escaping space and attacking new space. 
So you, as an offensive player, and I'm guarding you, you're trying to, you're trying to attack somewhere. You're trying to create some separation or blow by move or whatever it is. Well, if my movement, if I'm making like two movements, but I haven't gotten out of that same space that I started in, um, it's too late. So we talk about escaping space, get out of that space. So if you drive by me, I'm in a hip turn, but as I'm hip turning, I'm immediately pushing away, escaping that space. Okay, just like you and I are in a race, I have to win the race and I'm trying to attack new space. And that's gonna be somewhere in front of you because you're trying to get to the rim. Well, I gotta get in that gap between you and the rim. And so we talk a lot about that. And the one thing we really emphasize with our defenders is just like, just like I would offensively, like we talk about being aggressive, attacking, you know, and don't be afraid to make mistakes. Well, we talk about that defensively, go for it. You know what I mean? That guy's trying to beat you, cut him off, go for it. You know, you get, you get beat, hey, let's get him next time. Give him a fist bump up the court and say, great job, I got you next time though. So we build this mindset of, hey, I'm coming at you all game. You're going to get me sometimes, but I'm going to tell you, you better be ready to come because I'm coming after you with my feet. So we want an offensive mindset defensively. So we don't want to sit there and always be passive and always be afraid and always giving ground. We give ground when giving ground is important and is, is part of our scheme. But we really try to get our players to have fun defensively and through the words that I give to my players, it's the same as the words I would give offensively. So Steve, if I said to you, go in the post, make a post move, you're gonna say, well, what post move? What, what do you want me to do? You want me to face up? You want me to drop step? You want me to do a, you know, a drop just step? Just say, go dunk it. Yeah, go dunk, right? <laughs> yeah, go dunk. You know, so I'm gonna say to you, hey, Steve, in this situation, look for the spin baseline because they're putting their forearm in your back, they're pressuring you. Don't try to drop step. You're gonna get knocked off your back. Just, just use their pressure against them, spin. Well, that gives you context as to what to do. Defensively, we try to do the same thing. I'm like, no, guys, don't, don't lunge on that. We're not trying to steal. We're just trying to deny three-point line space. We want them catching it 35 feet or 30 feet out. We don't want them catching it on. So let's use our snap shuffle. But if we are in denial, now we're using terminology that reflects that footwork that we want. So it just depends on the situation and now just like offense players get it now in their yeah. head instantly they're saying okay i got it this is right. what i do well you've done a great job of you know explaining that and, and you open my eyes for a second here because i always talk about as offensive players and i mean i get paid to teach offense more than i do defense i mean that's most yeah. that's most uh, people that's in my business but yeah. but you you think like i tell I often tell our players like you can take space you can create space you can keep space but what you're just saying is it's the same mindset defensively, right? And, and I mean, it's just such such great advice to keep that attacking, aggressive, focused mindset uh, from, from the defensive side, which brings me in my next question, which is also a little bit about defense. I mean, I think the closeout is the most, the hardest part of defense, right? Where you're trying, you're in a help side or you're in a one pass away gap position and you got to close the distance on that player who has the basketball, and if they have some game, I mean, they can light it if you give them space. They can get by you with, with one dribble on the first step. What are what's the advice that you would give a coach who's really trying to get their guys or their girls more effective on the closeout? Because you've probably heard it all too. Like I, we've had, I've had this conversation with a buddy. Coach. 
one hand high, two hands high, this type of footwork, no hands high, like no instruction. I'll just, we just get there. Like yeah. <laughs> what, what, what can you tell us? Yeah. Yeah. So, and it is, it, it, there's, there's a million different ways to do it. And it's funny. Great players make us all look good, right? They just do it. Like, yeah. you, you know, you get these guys who just got an instinct, a nose for the ball, mm-hmm. and they're so aggressive and not going to, they're not going to give an inch. They're good at it anyway. It doesn't matter. I, I remember Gino Ariema of UConn saying, uh, rebounding. He goes, I finally stopped teaching box. And now I said, go get the ball. And now our players are rebounding everything. They just go get the ball now, right? But so here's the thing that I try to bring to the table with coaches is I try to bring a little bit of science and physics into the equation. Not that they have to know all the rules of it, but if they understand. So when I, when I close out, you mentioned one arm or two arm. We teach one arm specifically because of physics and because of biomechanics. When two arms go up, my pelvis, my hips get drawn under me because of what we call extension. So when my hands go up and we reach high, my, my, if this were my head out in front of me and my shoulders as I'm running, but when my hands go up, my butt goes underneath me because of the, because the arms going up, it creates an extension moment. Well, that makes us. You guys can't see because you're listening on a podcast, but I'm I'm like doing all the movements Lee's talking about (laughs) uh, as he's going through it. You you should too while you're you're listening. This is good stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Go through the motions. That's what I do. (laughs) Unless you're driving. As both both hands go up in the air, the hips come underneath. Now, what that does is it just makes me, it it doesn't allow me to access my hips as easily. I got great quads. I can use my quads more, which in some cases is good, but when I get completely vertical, I'm a little bit less effective when I have to retreat or quickly shuffle and give a little bit of ground because, again, the offensive player always has the advantage. That's just, especially if they're a good player. So now, having said that, if we go with one hand, I can still do the job of getting a hand up on the shot if we jump late. Um, I can get a hand in the passing lane if they're going to pass over the top. My opposite hand, which is down, can be on the ball side to maybe deflect a wraparound pass into the post or maybe a dribble that way. So I've covered my bases a little bit there. The second part is when we are going from help position to the act of closing out, to getting closer to that shooter or that offensive player, the very first step needs to be a lateral run. So we call it pop, push, open, push. So let's picture me on the wing, uh, defending the wing player. You're the point guard and I'm in pretty good gap help. Or maybe let's even say it's the ball is on the other wing. So I've got maybe a foot in the lane, right? And I'm pointing at the ball and I'm pointing at my player who's on the wing. Now, when they skip that ball, my first action, and let's say the offensive player with the ball is on the right wing, okay? And so I'm guarding the player on the left wing. So I'm going to push off with my left foot and take a step towards my player where the ball is being skipped with my right. So that we call that a push, an open. Now I'm going to bring that left foot through. So now I'm running. I just went from an open. I turned big and I'm opening. That little step right there gets a lot of players caught when they shuffle the first step. So sometimes what they'll do is they'll shuffle towards their player. It's too late. So we want to go and we want to push open push. Now we'll take based on the distance one to two acceleration steps. 
And then what we want to do, rather than doing early choppy steps and breaking down choppy, chop, chop, because sometimes what happens is that um, can cause a foot mistake, right? We're, we're breaking down too soon. What we want to do is get there, close the gap, and take like maybe one or two gather steps. So I'm going to be in an offset jump stop. So if I want to push you to the baseline, which would be to your left hand, you're my player that caught the ball. I'm going to come up and I'm going to make sure I'm a little bit higher on your top foot and we're going to get offset. So my body is facing closer to the sideline than it is squared up on you. And then, and we just kind of, we kind of go like almost like a one, two, boom, we stop. Now I want to respect the space. If I know you're a threat to pretty much catch and shoot because scouting said that, all right, I'll close the space a little more. But if you're a very effective catch and drive or what we call an air split, when the ball's in the air, your feet are in the air. So when you catch it, you immediately attack using an air split. And so I might close a little bit shorter and then still go like one, two and kind of stop into that. This is more of what we're seeing from the NBA and the higher level college because guys can just catch and shoot in an instant now. High school is getting better at it. And the younger you go, the less you have to worry about a knockdown shooter, right? You can, you can close off for the drive a little bit more. So what we do is that's the concept that we teach. And then we allow variability for each player because some defenders just aren't that good at that. So we allow them to um, use a footwork that works for them and we help them with it. And, and based on scouting, we'll tell them, look it, we just want you to run that person off the three. We're going to defend you from behind. Get, let, just get, don't let them catch and shoot, run them off. That's okay. If you get beat, get back in the play, maybe tip the ball from behind if they, you know, if they get a little lazy. Um, but other times it's like, by no means, let that person go by you, sit, jump late if they shoot. And then, uh, and then we go from there. Well, if, I mean, for those of you listening, I mean, I'd rewind the last five minutes. I mean, if you're, you're thinking defense close out, I mean, these were some, some nuggets right there. Can you, what was the terminology that, that, you mentioned in the beginning where I'm in a help side position and it was, was it push open push? Is that what it yep. was? Yep. Okay. Pop. So we, um, we, we say pop. Remember pop. guys, you're in pop right now. So Be push pop. with the backside foot, the mm -hmm. front side opens towards the target. You're yep. the target. You're the shooter. Now and our then, hips are starting to turn. Yeah. And then the, the front foot that open towards that becomes the last push. And then mm -hmm. I, then I run or do what I'm going to do from there. So push open push that immediately gets us to do what we talked about earlier is we escape space and I'm going to attack new space. So when we right. tell our defenders, you're going to go attack this new space where that space starts and ends. We don't know yet. We're going to right. figure it out as we go, because I can't tell you to, you know, get within three feet or get within five. It just depends, but we're going to learn how to do that. And the more they get experienced, the better they get at it. I mean, you're getting to that offensive player quick, but on those last two steps, we're, we're staggering those steps. We're not breaking down, you know, 10 steps or something like exactly. that. It's just yeah. pop, pop, getting into a wider base. Then we can start to change yeah. direction up there. I love it. You, before we get back to the episode, I want to thank you for listening to the Coach's Edge podcast. And if you find this episode beneficial, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. That goes a really long way as we continue to build the Coach's Edge. And most of all, share this episode out with someone else who you think also may find it beneficial. That's what the Coach's Edge is all about, trying to give you an edge, an advantage. Let's get better together. Back to the show. You mentioned 
getting low and how sometimes as low as we may teach is not actually beneficial for uh, player movement. When, when is it the right time to get low? When is it the not time to get low? I mean, I, I, I'm thinking, I'll give you some mics. Like I was in the beginning when I was coming up as a player, it was always about, and footwork gets into this too, but Hey, you want to get by your man? You got to take a big first step. I mean, I was a coachable kid and I was hard worker and I take a big step and I just felt like it was making me slower. Um, you know, and I was like stretching more so than actually moving. Right. Um, and as you get older, you know, I, the term I was taught was acceleration happens low, speed happens high. Now, how does that balance into, okay, but, but there's times where we can get too low and it's not benefiting us. Does, did that make any sense? <laughs> sure did. Uh, okay. hundred percent. I could, I can feel what you're saying. Cause I went through the same thing. Okay. So good players that have learned and have a relative amount of strength. And for the listeners, relative strength means I'm strong enough to handle my body weight in all the directions of motion. Okay. That's relative strength relative to my body weight. I can create force. I can jump high. I can sprint fast. Now, if I put a 20 pound weight vest on myself, now I might not be as strong as my body weight with that new added weight. So that's what we mean by that. So when we watch great players like a Kyrie Irving, who plays very low offensively, dribbles low, attacks low, he creates very nice angles. So when he gets low, he's actually long in the horizontal plane, meaning if you picture a track athlete coming out of the blocks, they get extremely long. They don't get high, they get long, like towards a 45 degree angle lean. So if Kyrie's driving by a defender, he's down by their hips and there's just nothing you can do to get after the ball. You, you just have to hope he's, you know, you're able to bump him off his line a little bit because he's, he's already beat you on the, on the low man wins category, but he handles the low man wins category really, really well. And that's important. Now, if you take somebody like LeBron James, now LeBron getting low isn't as efficient because that's not his strength, you know, so to speak. His strength is getting his body into your body and creating separation that way or spinning off your pressure. That's what LeBron likes to do. As where the smaller guards getting low is a learned skill. But it's not, it's not squatting low, it's projecting low. It's like a rocket taking off or a, a, an airplane taking off. They, they go very low and gradually get high. That's how we want to project. So I'm still pushing long. It's just that I'm not, I'm not uh, crunched. Like I'm not mm -hmm. crunched up in a little ball squatting way down. I'm just doing it horizontally long. So that's mm -hmm. offensively, that's what we want to see. So if we can handle that, we have the force to push hard enough and not crumple, like you said, taking that really long stride. We almost feel like you're pulling yourself and you're kind of squished in that position. That's not effective. So to be able to push and project and still be able to tilt your body to do a pullback or a step back, that's what playing low can help you with offensively. Mm -hmm. I, I think like there's so many kids, they want to get by that defender. So they take that first step that that might be quick enough to get there, but that second, third step, nothing happens. Defense is recovered. It's kind of like the heel goes in first and it's more like they're walking like an upright motion. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and 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 that's it's one of those things where it's such a predictive skill. So based on and what that means is based on what I'm sensing from you, my defender, I'm going to take that first step at different length. So if I get you to rise up a little bit, I can almost do what I want because I've already got you going the wrong way. You're yes. going vertical and I'm going to go by you. But if I give you a jab and you respect the jab and give me some ground, but I still try to go that way, sometimes that forces us to reach because now we're trying to get by you who've already given ground. We get caught in those bad positions. Hmm. That's why when we teach a like a hard rip and a hard little jab, it needs to be within ourselves because even if I have to pull it back, if it's too far out there, it just takes me a long time to pull it back versus you know, just jabbing. And, and I, the one thing I try to tell players a lot is chase your shoulders. If your shoulders are in front, yeah, you can push like your that. shoulders through space. I can push my shoulders, but if my shoulders get vertical, now my steps are going to be way out in front of yeah. my shoulders. And now I'm pulling myself through space rather than pushing through space. Yep. No, that's a, yeah, that's a great, te- that's a great teaching point. And you're absolutely right. When you, when you take that big step, your, your hips are almost in the middle and your shoulders straight up. And, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, instead of taking off like an airplane, you're like a helicopter, something like that. Um, So Um, James Harding is a perfect example. Like he always, whether he's jabbing or faking off the dribble, or if he has, it's, it's always a short little jab, little quick, quick action. And then he catches you. And then he's going such short steps, doesn't he? Just just... And then he's got that big body where once he gets his body on you, you're done. So bigger defenders have a little more luck against him Mm -hmm. on the drive. But when he gets that little step and next thing you know, he's gone. Yeah. And so, but he never gets away from himself with that big step. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great point. Like, cause those steps, especially those one, those initial ones, they're not big steps but they are, they are quick. I mean, he, yeah. and his ability to stop change direction is, is crazy. Um, that's great stuff. Another thing that I wanted to ask you about was rest to work ratio. Um, just because, I mean, as coaches and in sports in general, um, I think we're off like, we've got to work hard, got to sweat, got to keep pushing. And that's great. But if we're trying to build some of this, this burst that happens in basketball so much, um, you know, we, we need to be able to prepare the body to, to move quickly. Do you have any recommendations for what we should do with our athletes as far as how much they push compared to, okay, let's take a break. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's a really important, again, if we go back to science, we can't fool an athlete's biology. Like we can yell at them and work harder and say, Hey, you're not in shape. Do this we can yell all you want, but their biology is their biology. So if I want to make a player jump higher, run faster, or be quicker, meaning some change of direction movement in there, I need to respect the energy system, the energy system, which most listeners have at least heard of ATP, which is our energy. Well, ATP only lasts two seconds. Uh, ATP PC can last up to, uh, in my experience once i get beyond seven seconds it starts to deplete enough but up to 12 to 15 seconds is based on read but i keep it seven seconds or less for me um so if i want to maximize the most explosive energy that i have i need to be able to train at 100 percent effort 
intensity, go really hard, like sprint really fast, or or if I'm working on a shot fake at the top of the key, you know, one dribble, two dribble, get to the rim, explosive as I can. Okay, I need to do that. Now I need to be able to allow that one and a half to two second burst to have the ability to restore itself. So if I can give at least 30 seconds, you know, minimum, I can at least have a chance at still being really explosive. Now, the, here's, the, here's the, the, the part coaches have to understand. The time to really make those massive improvements is during the off season when you have time. You're not trying to put it in an offensive play or you're not trying to get prepared for your crosstown rival when you, you just got to practice. You don't have time to take three minutes after a run, right? You, you don't have that time. Off season, you do. If, because if my goal is to improve the limitations, which might be team speed, well, then I have to respect how speed is developed and allowing enough rest if I can allow enough rest, then my burst of energy will always be really high. But if I do like an explosive drill, jog back and go again, jog back, go again. By the time I do the third, fourth one, I'm really maybe at 50% effort energy. I just have, even though I'm trying hard, you can't fool biology. It's going to deplete until it has time to restore itself. I remember listening to a shooting coach one time, and this is just an example. He had an NBA player he wanted to shoot with, and he told the player, you're not allowed to play anything. No pickup ball, nothing for three months because offseason, your goal is to improve your shot. So no shooting during games because you're going to get it. We're only going to work on this. And that's what they did. So because he didn't want to disrupt the development. Well, that's what happens when coaches say, okay, now we're going to work on speed training and they make them do like a slap drill, a UCLA that's not speed, that's conditioning, you know? So, so we want to make sure that we allow enough rest. Now, here's some tricks to this. This is what I learned and what I used to do. Let's say I'm, I'm working on just pure speed and we go from the baseline to the, like the top of the key. So that distance, whatever it is, 18 feet or whatever that is, uh, 19 feet, or actually from the baseline out there is probably 20 from spending on the size of the court. We're talking maybe 22 feet or more. So, if we do that sprint and then we want to recover, let's say a minute or so, I would have basketballs at each of the six baskets and they'd go shoot foul shots for a minute. And then we come back, let's do another one. So we did stuff in between, or maybe we would do some quick ball handling or quick passing, pass entries in between. So we worked on a skill while we let the body recover. Then we'd go get another sprint. And the great thing about speed training is you don't need that much exposure. It just has to be 100% to make change. So if I'm going as hard as I can, even for three to five reps, you're going to make a difference. And then you can go on about your practice and other stuff. So for my athletes, when I coached, uh, even when I was a head coach of my girls basketball team, varsity team in Indiana, off season, we sprinted twice a week, three to four times up to 30 to 40 yards. In season, we sprinted once every seven to eight days. And that maintained us, but we only did three reps at 30 meters. We never lost our speed. We maintained it right through the whole season because we practiced it. I, I love that. I mean, from the conditioning standpoint, I mean, if you're playing an hour and a half, two hours, you're, you're going to get that, yeah. that wind. And then like, sometimes as coaches, we can do all the playing. Then we do conditioning on top of it. It's like, if we cut that and do the things that you're talking about, 
right. I mean, now we're, we're really going to be uh, rolling throughout the course of the season. And I, I got to assume our players are going to be healthier too <laughs> by doing that. Definitely. How does the, how does the weight room intertwine with all this? I mean, as coaches, we want our players to be, you know, faster, quicker. Um, at the same time, we want them to be stronger as well. Yep. Yep. Without a doubt. So if I want to be good at accelerating or jumping, that's applying force into the ground. Right. And if I can apply that force at a higher rate and at a higher level, I'm going to be more effective, whether it's going forward, sideways, backwards or vertical. So the weight room, we have to understand the weight room is a tool to improve my basketball performance on the court. And when we get caught up with numbers and rating boards and stuff like that, because some athletes just aren't designed for the weight room to lift a lot of weight. And that's okay. That's not what it's for unless you're on a power lifting team or an Olympic lifting team, right? Otherwise, we just want to do two things. We want to improve performance and we want to improve or reduce the risk of injury so we want to improve the health aspect and strength training through good quality movements good range of motions builds joint integrity it builds um, it can build range of motion I can improve my range of motion in the weight room if we do it correctly because the the body senses it can handle that range of motion so it'll give it to you and so, especially when I was working with my girls teams, my boys long time ago, when I first started coaching, strength training wasn't as big back, back in the later eighties and early nineties, we did a little bit of stuff. But when I started coaching girls, it was paramount because it improved performance, but they were just safer. We, we, we protected their knees and their hips and their shoulders. And, and it doesn't have to be anything difficult as long as we stay with compound lifts and a compound lift could be like a squat or I could be, do a combination lift. Like I could do a squat, stand up and then press the bar above my head. So that's a compound movement. So I'm getting really good kinetic chain energy there that I'm, I'm using the whole body really smooth, just like I would on a jump shot, even though it's not the same as a jump shot, but that's what we want is we want energy to transfer from the feet through the legs, through the hips, through the core, up through the arms. So we can simulate that. We can go in and do three to four sets of five to eight reps of, you know, anywhere around four exercises, compound exercises, a push, a pull, a squat, and a bend, and we're good to go. Vary it the next workout a little bit, and you're good. And that's really all they need uh, to become effective and efficient. Now, if they have a full-time strength coach, like some of the colleges do, or some of the bigger high schools, Good. Let them do it as long as they understand it. And, uh, and then they'll, they should be able to benefit from that. I love effective, efficient. We're focused on performance and health. And uh, at no point in there were, did you say we want to be bench pressing <laughs> one point, whatever times our body weight or squatting or deadlift. Right. Um, that's, that's it, some golden, golden stuff. Golden and, stuff. And you know what? If, if Kevin Durant didn't convince us, <laughs> You know, and again, this is no disrespect to Kevin Durant, but Kevin Durant is not designed to bench press a lot of weight, but yet everybody made, you know, all yeah, these social they were, media. Yeah, hammering on him. A guy, but yet he'll drop 30 on you in the first <laughs> half, you know, for doing this. Like, so what do you want? You want a guy who can bench press, you know, 225 so many reps, or do you want a guy that can drop 30? So mm -hmm. I think that yeah. all of us will take the 30. No doubt about that. A um, couple more questions as we finish up the podcast. This has been this has been awesome. 
we've touched on a few, but are there anything, I mean, you, you've been around basketball for, for decades, your whole life. What are some common things that as high school basketball coaches in particular that you see us doing wrong? Well, a couple of things that I'll just mention quickly, and then we'll go into a little bit more, but we, we talked about speed training. Um, if we want to develop faster, and more efficient athletes, we have to respect the recovery process. And that's not just in that one workout. That's like the next day. If you beat the crap out of your players in one practice, the next day, if you want to get another win, in other words, have a successful practice, you need to respect it and you need to come in and maybe be a little bit more methodical on on execution of plays, but not so much hard pounding. We need to understand um, the, the wave loading of a practice, uh, a weekly practice. We can't have always hard practices because your players will decline. Eventually they're gonna, you know, they're gonna get hurt. Something chronic or acute could happen to their body. So we wanna respect that. But I, I, the other thing I, I think, especially at the, the high school and under, Leveled and you know somewhat college, but college has a little more control, and then obviously the the high WNBA and the NBA and, and European leagues have a little more control. Is we need to understand the athletes that we have in front of us. Like I can't, I can't do something that I see the New Jersey Nets do, or the you know Brooklyn Nets. New Jersey goes to show you how old my thought is. The Brooklyn Nets are with three dynamic offensive players. They can do whatever they want. Doesn't matter what system they run, just get out of their way and spot up and catch and shoot, right? We have to do a better job of setting our players up for success. And that means I can have a mindset, like I can say, hey, I like dribble drive, right? I like that, or I like five out motion or whatever it is, that's fine. But you might have to get some sets in there that manufacture shots for your players because if you don't have players that can manufacture their own shots so that's going to set them up for success if you give them something that get, puts them in the right spot to get a shot we get sometimes our egos get big and like, ah, we're going to do this come hell or high water we're going to run this offense maybe your team just can't do that but the same thing athletically you want to be a pressing team, but you don't have athletes that are efficient movers and more importantly, are not great readers of the game. Great defenders read really well. Like they just sense what the next thing's happening and they actually make a movement before it happens. That's what guys like even Larry Bird, who wasn't known as a speedster, always in the right position because he just saw things, he felt things. If you don't have that type of athlete we have to do a better job of setting our kids up for success and kind of, you know, squelching our own ego and saying, okay, maybe this year until I develop my younger kids, this is what we're going to have to go with so that we have a chance to compete at a higher level. And see, that goes all the way down to my drill selection. Because yes, on YouTube, I saw this drill that looks amazing, but my kids can't dribble left-handed or they can't go past two dribbles left-handed. So I have to make sure my drills are enhancing something that's going to help us play better as a, as a program or as yeah. a team, because otherwise we just get really good at doing a drill that doesn't transfer. So those are some of the things I think we have to do a better job of. No, that's great. I mean, as a coach listening, especially as a varsity coach, I mean, ask yourself like, what do your players do well? And then ask yourself, well, how can you put them in a position to do what they do well more often, right? 
mean, because it, I might love a certain system. If it doesn't fit my guys or my girls, I'm yeah. probably, I'm probably in big trouble. Yeah. Can, um, can I give you a quick example? Just yeah, please do. Please do. So when I was coaching my oldest daughter, Jay, who's now actually, it's funny, this will be her first year coaching JV basketball in Florida as well. But when I coached her in Indiana, that team I had had seven seniors and I had, I had three guards that were all five, three, and I had another guard five, five, and then I had a five, eight player. That was my lineup, my starting lineup. And we played in 4A, which is the biggest in Indiana. So we played, you know, teams that had five, six division one players and all, but we played a very, very fast style. We pressed full court. We trapped. We were okay with them getting a quick layup because we're coming right back at you and trying to get the ball at the floor in 2.5 seconds. And every single offensive situation, foul shooting, anything, we had fast break situations for. So we were going to, we were going to, shove the ball down your throat defensively all game saying that by the fourth quarter, we're going to wear you out. And we did very, very, we actually lost in the, in the sectional finals to a, the, the biggest school in our area by, you know, three times the size of us in overtime in their gym. And we were right there. And we, we, we had about a small section of time during that season when we just were playing bad. So I went into this zone type thing we got smoked because I had five, three players that didn't matter that they could close out. We just, they threw over us. They skipped us. They shot over us. And I said, the hell with that. I went right back to going after people and we got on a winning streak again. So I, what I did is I looked at that team and I said, this gives us the best chance to play. And that's how we beat teams. We just disrupted people so much. They couldn't do what they wanted to do. The next year, graduated those players. I had a young team. My younger daughter, who was a freshman that year, came up a sophomore. She was my starting point guard. And we had to play completely different. I had to manufacture almost shots for every player. I mean, we did four across UCLA cuts with a back screen to get somebody open. Like the back screen would get open for a shot because they didn't have that same mentality. Mm -hmm. And it was just like I sat with my assistants and I'm like, scratch everything we did last year because yeah. that's not going to work and that's that's the type of attitude i think coaches have to have how can you make each team be successful no i love it you I mean you're finding ways to be successful based on the, the players that you have that's that's awesome you so you, we have a lot of coaches that have multi-sport athletes you work with athletes that play a handful of different sports regarding basketball is there another sport that you feel like has the most similar footwork you know, the sport that I would say is really close to it to a degree, especially laterally, is tennis because it's so quick. You go from a lateral shuffle to a lateral run to a recovery step. If you're a, a, an approaching player, like an attacking player, you're going to hip turn a lot to get back. That has a lot of the quickness. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, obviously sports where you're engaged, like soccer, when I'm actually engaged with the ball or marking someone, there's a lot of similar movements there um, to a degree, but, but really I have always said, and I love all sports. I can't think of another sport that attaches all the movements that you could possibly have within seconds. Yeah. I could jump, go right into a run, 
turnover. Now I'm shuffling and I'm, I'm hip turning to get back on defense. All within five seconds, I hit all those seven patterns we talked about. That doesn't happen in a lot of sports, you know. I mean, football might happen sometimes, but not every player is going to have to jump all the time, right? right? Basketball, at some point, you're going to have to jump. You're going to have to shuffle. You're going to have to backpedal. You're going to have to retreat. You're going to do all these things. And it's just hard to think of other sports that have all that 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 um, intently. Like, I have to intently move that way. No, that's that's kind of what I, my mom played college tennis. And so I grew up playing tennis more recreationally. And I always, you know, you play different sports growing up. And I always felt like there's just a lot of that quick, you know, you talk about like pop shuffle and different types of lateral movement, then turning the hips uh, that, that tennis has. And not a lot of people play tennis, but uh, I think there's tons of characteristics to basketball footwork. And like you said, with the soccer and there's some contact in there, that yeah. makes a lot of sense as well. Um, What's one thing, as we finish out the podcast, what's one thing that you know now that you really wish you knew, say, 20 years ago when you really started getting after it and coaching and working with players or maybe yourself as an athlete? Yeah, um, well, I, I think probably one of the biggest things is understanding, um, we, we kind of opened with this a little bit, is understanding learning better. Um, and what I mean by that, and this, some coaches are going to listen to this and say, oh, yeah, all right, yeah, that's cool. But no, really, when we get frustrated and yell at our players because they didn't do something right, rarely do we question ourselves and say, well, you know, what? maybe I didn't get maybe because you got to think about it. They're a different human being than us. They're not thinking on the same wavelength as we are. That just doesn't always happen. They have other thoughts. So if if I did a better job, like right now, I feel I'm really good at it, where I get my cues are very pointed and very um, intent on making um, an improvement instantly or, or uh, having an understanding instantly. So when I, when I say to a player, um, you know, a snap shuffle or a waddle shuffle, they know exactly what to do because we practiced it. We've used the term and we put it in context as to where it's going to be used. I didn't do that a long time ago. I yelled like everybody else, come on, go harder. Get, what are you doing? And, <laughs> yeah. you know, and they probably were an athlete that just couldn't do it. So that's the one thing I wish I was better at is I, I wish I understood learning better. So simplifying phrases, one word, if I say one word, snap, boom, they get it right off. They know what I mean. Or or whatever that word happens to be, simplifies it. Communication from player to coach, coach to player is much better. And I didn't do that very well when I was younger. And I should have did a better job because I was a phys ed teacher. But when you get in coaching, sometimes you coach like you were coached. And I remember mm -hmm. I had coaches that, you know, a couple of them were really, really good, but some of them just yelled all the time. And so you just get in that mindset. Well, that's how you got to get results is you yell. So uh, that's, that's the area I would have improved. Love it. Um, Lee. Who's one person who's impacted you over your life as a coach? Without, without a doubt, and I know people may say this up, is my, my father, my father who you know, passed away many, many years ago. Um, I'm the youngest of six, and almost all of us were teachers. My brothers, three and three, three boys, three girls. My older brothers were all phys ed teachers, coaches, ADs, and some couple, one of them went administration. Well, my dad was in it for 44 years 
And even when he was, he was in World War II stationed in Jacksonville, he was the head of performance way back then for all the military. He, his job was to do physical education and performance to give them, get them fit. And so I learned from a young, young boy, all the things that he used to do and how he talked and how he, how he used to teach things. And, and he, he was a head football, head basketball, baseball, track, you name it. He coached all these sports. And I grew up around that and his influence as a young kid, like we used to break down plays and stuff when I was, you know, in elementary school. So that I didn't, I didn't know anything different. Now, as I'm older, I'm thinking, no, a lot of people weren't lucky enough to have that, you know, mm-hmm. unless they had a dad or a mom as a coach. And so I was really influenced by his, uh, his thought process as how to coach. And it made me realize basics and fundamentals. Cause at that time, coaching in the forties, fifties, in 60s, when he did it, it was very much about the the emphases of, of a lot of these sports, especially at the high school level, and how to teach it. So I was privy to that information, and that helped me tremendously develop a philosophy. Well, that's awesome, man. I, I have no doubt your dad will be very proud of you and everything that you you got uh, going you. on. That's that's uh, awesome stuff. Uh, this this was awesome. I'll, I'll let you finish it out. Tell us a little bit about some of the things uh, that you have going on for any of our coaches that might be interested and they want to learn more about you. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, we, we're real excited. We're coming up here soon and we're going to be launching a new course called the Certified Basketball Speed Specialist. It's a level one course uh, going to be coming out here. Actually, it'd be coming out on, well, depending on when this releases, it'd be Monday, whatever that date is, the 12th or something like that. Um, or the 11th. And, and what it is, is it's breaking down all the basic fundamentals of these patterns we talked about, this footwork and giving terminology or what we call nomenclature. So there's great communication between your players. And then we, we give situations on how to use basketball speed and how to do it from the foundational set. And we, we talk about all those different seven patterns and all the different things that help to develop basketball speed but also coaching of basketball speed. So you can break this down for a third grade team or a NBA team. And when I've worked with some of the professional teams, we've used these, these techniques and stuff so that they get back to the basics and the fundamentals. And if they go to uh, basketballspeedspecialist.com, that's where they can get on that list and they'll be notified right off by being on that list. Awesome. I'll be sure to put uh, Lee's contact information and some of those website links in the description below. Lee, thank you for taking the time to be on the Coach's Edge podcast. Oh, this was awesome. Thanks so much, Lee, for having me. I appreciate it. You do a great job. This was fun. I know I learned a lot. I know our coaches will too. And, you know, if you're listening right now, thank you for listening to the Coach's Edge podcast. If you find it beneficial, please share it out with another coach. Say, hey, man, I think you might enjoy this episode. Go ahead and give it a listen. And obviously, subscribe, rate, review. That goes a really long way uh, as we continue to help as many coaches as we can through the Coach's Edge. So thank you for listening. And as always, get after today. Thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you to Lee for taking the time to be on the Coach's Edge podcast. And I want to wish all of our coaches the best of luck as they head into basketball season. It is that time of year. And I hope you use some of these things that Lee shared with us and apply it to your practices, thinking about how you can best benefit them and build them throughout the course of the season. If there is anything that I can do for you, please let me know. 
And as always, a positive rating and review goes a really long way with the Coach's Edge. Thank you for listening. And as always, get after it today.